Hi, this is Frank Marino of Mahogany Rush, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hey, this is Jerry from the Misfits, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Happy Halloween, everybody. All right, Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. In episode 72, we've got two guests, uh, both from legendary bands coming to the Pittsburgh area in the next several weeks, both extremely diverse, um, couldn't be more divergent almost in styles, but both uh, true legends of the music industry. Uh, the first, uh, the Misfits, they'll be coming on October 22nd to the Altar Bar with guests Juicehead, The Educators, and Children October. The show is at uh, 9 p.m. on the 22nd, a great Halloween-themed show. You can get more information and tickets through druskyentertainment.com. So we're going to play a little bit of some Misfit uh, classic, get into the interview that uh, our guy Aaron did with uh, Jerry Only, one of the founding members of the band. Uh, and then we're going to follow it up with just a little more of a, a true Misfits classic. And then we will uh, introduce our second guest. So here you go. We are Gentlemen, welcome to the Iron City Rocks podcast. Tonight I have punk rock legend Jerry Only of the Misfits with us. Jerry, how you doing? Hey, good. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Hey, I'm glad you could join us. So, um, Jerry, you have been the only constant member of the Misfits, really, uh, like over over the years of this. How like how did you come to join this band? Uh, well, we started the band uh, while I was still in high school. I, I had uh, worked at um, a machine shop and, uh, you know, gone to school. And sports uh, was all done for the year. And I just said to myself, hey, you know, I was really interested in playing. A uh, buddy of mine who passed away got killed in a, car, in a motorcycle accident, so be careful. He, uh, he uh, talked me into playing the bass. And after about a month of lessons, uh, learning music theory, I started a band with Glenn, and um, we played our first show uh, in April of 1977 at CBGB's. Wow. Yeah, and that's just so iconic. I mean, you figure you guys are really an iconic punk rock band. Um, and oh, well, now you also kick it off with the iconic CBGB. I mean, that that just sounds like you're destined for greatness right from the start there. Well, you know, if you've seen CBGB, you think twice about that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, you know, there's a lot to learn. I mean, especially in a business like this, uh, you, you there's so much to learn, and you learn as you go. And uh, actually, you know, I think our best work is today. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, we've been learning and, and growing all the while. 
Well, you know what? I agree with that. I was listening to um, to some songs off of Project 1950 and just kind of checking out the the, uh, the current lineup. And I got to say, um, I really love what you guys do with those covers. I mean, you put a great spin on it. You put the Misfit signature to it. And I was really impressed with your singing. And I'm kind of curious, how come you never sang before this? Well, before that, I was I was never looking actually to be a singer. I really enjoyed playing the bass and uh, doing backups and things like that. And, uh, I had thought about it, but uh, when I had joined the band, you know, Glenn was uh, singing. He was doing a great job. So it was just like, uh, you know, I had my spot on the team, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, uh, certain people like in sports, you get one guy on the team that does something special. So, But uh, over the years, trying to deal with people, it became really rough. And eventually, you know, the job kept falling on my lap. So uh, I just, instead of, you know, being something that I did as a fill-in, I eventually came to the point in the road where I was just like, look, let me just be serious about this. Let me get some vocal training. Let me get some things together. Thank you for my guitar, Eva. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it wound up working out well. I mean, if you like the vocals out of the 1950s, you're going to be really impressed on this new album we just finished. Uh, we're mixing it right now. And uh, I tell you what, it's, it's, it's the best work we've ever done. And uh, I'm really excited about it. Because I found out that uh, working with uh, Ed Stasium, who did all the Ramon stuff, of how you really need to approach the vocals to get them on the record properly. And for those of you out there who may make a record someday, it's a matter of singing the vocals exactly the same twice. A lot of people double them. They just re-record the same one and offset it a little bit to give you some type of an effect. But that's not the answer to the problem. All the, all the real pros actually make you sing it twice because it'll totally be different even though it's the same and it winds up creating this effect you think there's an effect on the vocals and in the meantime there's not it's just flat out the way it's supposed to be it really adds a third dimension to your vocals and uh it's something you can't get digitally wow that that's just that's fantastic that's great advice for all our listeners out there too and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I think that's kind of one of the Aussie tricks that he used to use back in the old um, Black Sabbath days. Yeah, like I, I heard a lot of that. So yeah, yeah, well, a lot, yeah, a lot of people. You'd be surprised at the people. Uh, he worked with Mick Jagger. He worked with uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and uh, he said that yeah, he said there's people who can come in and actually do it like line after line exactly the same. Uh, but you know, it's like snowflakes. There are no two that are exactly the same. And the slight deviation between the two tracks is what gives you the what gives you the body, what gives you the fullness. Oh wow, yeah. And pretty interesting. I yeah, you know, I learned something new. Thirty you know, thirty three years in and I learned something new. <laughs> and you really got a heck of a voice. I mean, even like without being in the studio, I was watching a video of you last night singing the national anthem and <laughs> what did you think of that? <laughs> and that was amazing. I mean, like I couldn't get over how powerful your voice was and just, just how you're holding the notes. I mean, you had, you had like a real Elvis-like quality to your voice. And like, I, I've wow. always been an Elvis fan. He's got a great voice, but you just pushed it and just, I mean, it takes a lot to be able to stand up and do what you did anyway, but you just nailed it, Jerry. It was awesome. Well, well, hey, th- thank you so much. You know, Tom, I was a little bit concerned on it. We were, uh, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Venezuela, but they got a guy down there that's not a big American fan and, uh, a friend of mine who deals with the roller derby out in uh, Seattle wanted me to do that. And I told her, I said, look, I said, oh, when I go down to South America, I'll work on it during sound check. And I said, if it sounds like I can do it, then I'll come up and do it. And uh, it was funny because I was doing the national anthem in this big venue, in this big arena type place down in Venezuela where they're totally anti-American. So oh, that's it was kind great. Of, you know, yeah, it was kind of funny. 
But the, the thing was that the, I came up and I did it. And, you know, it's, you know I, I, I've been to sporting events my whole life. I mean, we we long-time giant season ticket holders and um, stuff like that. And, you know, you go, to, you go to these big events and you always say, man, I would love to do the national anthem. And let me tell you, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's kind of scary, you know what I mean? You, th- you, you would think that you go out there and, you know, it's all like, you know, you get all pumped up and you feel really good about, you know, there's, there's a lot involved, you know. I was like, kind of like when I got done, I was like, whew. Maybe that's done. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not something wow. I would really want to be doing on a daily basis, you know. But uh, I'm happy I did it, and uh, I'm I'm really happy that it came out the way it did. And uh, that's why we posted it up. We figured some other people might get a kick out of it. But I'm happy you liked it. Oh, it was awesome. And you would have never guessed that you had any bit of nervousness. It was funny. Like, I watched you come out, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is Jerry only. You, just, you come out, you own the crowd, just like you would if you were on stage with your bass. And you just come out, you rock it, you nail it, and then boom, right off. Jeez, I just that short video, it's just blown away. It was amazing. Oh, well, good. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy we put it up. So um, we've talked about your bass a little bit. I've heard all kinds of different stories and rumors about your bass, because I've always been impressed with just how, um, I guess, gothic, for lack of a better term, gothic-looking your instruments have always been, uh, with the, the skulls on the head socks. What's the evolution been over of that over the years? Like I've heard stories about you and your brother modifying your instruments in your dad's shop. Yeah, well, you know, we work in the machine shop, and the thing was that back in the 80s, I mean, we had a long period of time where we were in legal battles. I, I, I literally took my paycheck every week from work and sent it to either buy equipment or to a lawyer to pay some kind of lawyer bill. And uh, we ran into a guy uh, through a friend of ours, and he, was, he had worked for Schechter, and he wanted to start his own guitar line. So... When he came out to New Jersey, we told him, we said, hey, look, come on up by us. And we sat down and we, we learned how to build guitars. I made all kinds of notebooks on all the things that needed to be known and all that kind of stuff, you know, document everything. And uh, at the time, I was using Rickenbackers. I would buy, uh, they, they call it a 4001, kind of like the one that Lemmy plays or, or uh, the guys in the jam used to use them. And what happened was that uh, I used to go online, and, uh, well, not online, there was no line back then. There was the one at press. I'd go through the one at press and I'd find a used uh, Rickenbacker. And if it was less than 200 bucks, I'd buy it no matter what condition it was in. And I'd chop it up. I'd grab a saw and I'd make all bat wings on it and I'd glue a head sock on with a skull and I'd change the pickups and, you know, things that I could do at the machine shop. And uh, once we met this guy about making new guitars, we designed the, the guitars that we have today. And uh, it was costing about $500 at the time. This is back in the '80s to put one of them together. So I figured for the extra 300 bucks, it was it was totally worth my time to have my own guitar rather than rather than ruining a vintage equipment that somebody else might actually want and enjoy. You know, so yeah. I was you know I was I was taking you know good equipment and turning it into rubble basically. <laughs> I figured we would just start from scratch. And you know, today I'm actually working with Bernie Rico. His dad was a uh, 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 DC Rich, and. Uh, uh, Bernie's putting together some for me. I should have some available next year. Uh, he's, he's making like 15 prototype runs. We're going to let people buy those and let you know get some kind of feedback before we go into a main production run. But, uh, you know, I'm very happy with my bass. Uh, it's something that uh, really lends itself. It's really heavy. I mean, once you put it on between that and my jacket, it's like maybe about 50, 60 pounds. It's kind of like, you know, the Army guys got to carry that backpack on their back through the desert. It's like one of those kind of deals. So, um, you know, from that perspective, uh, 
you know, it's uh, it, it's an instrument that you know meant to meant, meant to be dealt with. It's it, it, it's real. It's it's really solid. Uh, that's pretty much the one thing I can say. It's got every every. Uh, I took out all the fringe. It's got no knobs. There's no volume knobs. There's no turn it up, turn it down. You plug it in and you go. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's top heavy. It's very top heavy. So you can't actually let go of the guitar. So everything else you do on stage, you got to do with one hand. So, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it builds up your arm a little bit, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'm really proud about them. I'm making some out of graphite, some out of maple. We're trying different woods. We're trying to see which, which sounds the best. That's the process we're in right now. And, uh, you know, I'm just taking my time with it and trying to do the best job I can. I got offered by BC Rich to make a knockoff one that would sell for about 400 bucks. But um, to be honest with you, that's not what it's about for me. You know, I'm looking to, I'm, I'm looking to make some <clears throat> as an investment. You buy it, it goes up in value, and it's something you really want to hold on to. So, I oh, mean, that's yeah. the that's the philosophy here. We try and make the best stuff we can. So, is the body style of those bases going to be based on, on the body style of the current base that you have? Uh, well, the, the the current style it looks more like a, a beetle. It, it okay. looks very like in, insect like. Uh, the Rickenbacker, you kind of have to work to the shape that they give you. You know, it's got one big wing on the top and one big wing on the bottom. My, my body's symmetrical. The top and the half are, are mirror reflections of each other. So, uh, you know, you couldn't you, could, you couldn't get that with a Rickenbacker without adding pieces. And I wasn't an add-on guy. I was more like a uh, you know chisel away kind of guy. So, I I can't wait to see these prototypes. I've always been a big fan of your instruments because they've always just been so visually striking. <laughs> you know, um, I actually met you once at a NAMM show. It was uh, the January NAMM show, two thousand one. And so I got to meet you at that show. And then um, I also, um, I was walking by and I saw, I guess, one of the handlers ha- had your base. And I'm like, hey, can you stop? I want to get a picture of that. And um, so he let me take a picture, but he also let me put it on. I don't know if I should be telling you that or not. But he actually, like, I got to wear your base. And, um, he, you know, they snapped the picture of me with it. Like, that was just, like, the most amazing moment. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, it's Jerry's base, you know. And heavy, you're, you're right. right. Yeah, you know, it was very heavy. It's very heavy, but it's also <laughs> yeah, just so solid. Yeah, yeah. It's got it's got a really good sound. And we got a guy right now who's making pickups for us. Uh, there's a guy company up in Massachusetts called Guitar Fetish, and I've been searching for a pickup. I wanted to do a deal with EMG, but uh, see, the thing is, when, when you go for endorsements, at least I do anyway. I'm not looking for you know free equipment, or I'm not looking for uh, money to to endorse a product. What I'm looking for is really the exposure that you know we come up with a we come up with a product we like, and then these companies go out and do full page ads in magazines. One, it promotes the band. Two, it promotes them and the product. And three, it gives you uh, like an aura of being you know in the mix even when you're not. You know uh, that's the one thing that uh, you know you you would see like uh, they were doing Kerry King from a Slayer. They were selling his pickups and stuff like that. So I told them, I said, listen, we wanted an EMG Misfit pickup. And they were like, well, you know, we got all our, you know, promotional money tied up in promoting this this Kerry King thing. And we really don't want to do that. And I said, well, look, I said, that's fine. But I said, realize, you know, even though I am using EMGs, I'm going to try and source out my own pickup. I said, I mean, I think that's something that I want. I want to be able to tell the kids a, you know, an affordable pickup that I think is going to do the job for them. And, uh, you know, the if they even if they're not using my base because it's not available yet, that they're able to use the pickups that I'm using. So I finally found somebody to make it for me, and right now they're sourcing it out. They're going to uh, 
try and get this skull on the on the pat on the on the pickup itself and the logo and stuff like that. So we're working on that. Hopefully next day I'll be there with uh, you know with these 15 bases that'll be up for sale and for uh, um, the pickups and hopefully a wireless system too. I'm talking to Nady about making a Mister Wireless system. Trying to get a really good quality product at a real affordable price out to the people that like the band and like the sound, so that this way they can, if they're going to do, you know, Mr. Songs and they want it to sound more like the band, then they can relatively do it at an affordable price, you know. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and like, speaking of, like, the different merchandise out there, I mean, you have the music here, but you guys have also been really good about other Misfits branded merchandise. Like, um, I've seen Misfits tennis shoes, Misfits iPod cases. Um, you name it, I seem to be able to find that misfit skull on there. And so so much so that, that my wife has become been able to recognize it. Like She doesn't listen to a lot of the music that I listen to, but she can recognize the misfit stuff because every time I'm over there, I'm picking it up, and she's like, no, you don't need that. I'm like, no, no, I do, really. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, the, the, the visual, the skull and the um, the feed skull, and the and the logo, you know, is is very recognizable. Every, you know, it goes everywhere. I mean, we try and do a lot of merchandising deals. Now, my manager John Caffiero is also working with the Ramones now, trying to clean up some of the stuff for them, uh, because there there was always two division, two dividing camps there. And instead of working in unison, they always kind of worked against each other. So uh, John's involved now. He he represents uh, Dee Dee Ramone and Johnny Ramone's interests. And then Mickey, uh, Mickey Lee, uh, Joey's brother, uh, represents his interest. So, and basically, what happens is that you know um, John's able to get the Ramones into a lot of more accessible places because the Misfits has a little bit of an edgy logo to it. You know what I mean? We got a little bit of a bite. So the Ramones is more straight up and uh, more. I, I, I guess commercial would be like a, a safe word to use. I mean, I don't know if it's a proper word to use, but. Uh, it's, they're a lot. They're they're a lot more uh, user friendly for uh, you know the mass media. So uh, he's been doing a lot of stuff with them. Like in other words, there's a Ramones Converse shoe out now. Uh, actually, he sent me a pair because my my mystery shoes were were breaking down on me. So uh, he got me a pair of uh, black uh, high top uh, Ramones cons to wear to Europe. And uh, you know it's nice because we have uh, you know with John we have a voice over there now trying to talk to some of more of the more high-end, you know, uh, like uh, Converse kind of companies. and uh, But at the same time, we see, the main thing is we try and make a good product. I mean, that's the that's difference between us and, say, somebody like a Kiss or, or something like that. I mean, Kiss puts their, you know, they just throw it on everything. And, they you know, they obviously do maybe ten times more than us. But at the same time, you know, like if we do an action figure or we do something like this, we try and, you know, make it that it's going to be something of, of value, and something that when it's done, it kind of uh, is the is now the standard that others are judged by. And you know, with the action figures, oh, you hold on, uh, keys for the car? No, I don't have them. They got to be up there. Yeah, I guess I, I think they're up on the thing. So uh, you know, the thing is, like with action figures, I actually lost money making the action figures that we had made, but we did get action figure a year, and the kids that have them were really happy with them. And uh, you know, Toys R Us had them, and KB Toys had them, and you know, people say, oh, well, these guys got all these, you know, toys out here. They must be doing really well with it. Uh, the cost of making the toy was so expensive that uh, there was really nothing left over by the time the product was made and the product was shipped. It was in, it was in the red a little bit. But at the same time, it did it, it did do, they might be, Mama. They, they did do, um, you know, what we had, had intended them to do was really just to, to mark and, you know, prove a point that, you know, something like that could be made. 
at that you know at that level. So, so that's so that's that. Oh yeah, and and they're so recognizable. And coming back to that, um, like talking about like how iconic the band is, and especially that that misfit skull, like how recognizable that is. So, how did you guys develop like this zombie Elvis, zombie greaser kind of look? I mean, you you guys have a very distinctive look. Like, how how did that evolve over the years? Well, the thing was that uh, when we started, it, it was it was just like a, a standard punk band, and you know, the, even though punk was created by the Ramones in New York, it wound up being something that the media had turned into as a British revolution, you know, uh, something that was coming down the pipe. And uh, what happened was that uh, I had had my hair blue and I had it spiky, kind of like Sid Vicious's hair. And what happened was that since I worked in a machine shop and there wasn't much going on at the time, my hair just started getting longer and longer and longer. So I started combing it in like a DA. And it eventually got down to about my nose. And at the time, we were looking for a darker image and I said, well, you know, I said, you know what, I'm just going to dye my hair black. I said, you know, that should work. And when I dyed my hair black and I combed my hair, there it was sitting right in the middle of my face. So it was just like, you know what, I'm going to cut the sides real short and just let the front keep going. So, so that's how we did that. Yeah, I'll help you look. Oh. Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm with you. Sorry about that. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, Wow. <laughs> Because, I mean, again, your look is just so distinctive. So, I mean, it, it's great that you guys have thought it out. And it's so simple. Like, I've always enjoyed kind of the, the 50s greaser look, like the Sean and Nothing. And you guys took it and just gave it that edge. You know, it just yeah. made it just that, a little bit edgier. Yeah. Really, really uh, yeah. yeah, no, it wound, it wound up working really well. And it's a distinctive thing. I mean, you can see a lot of kids sporting it at the shows and, you know, the the makeup part works really well, too. Yeah. Hey, so let's talk more about this current record, because I am really excited about it. There's been rumors flying around about it online. Um, is it going to feature uh, – well, I guess let's talk about, like, who's, who's the current lineup of the Misfits? There's you on bass. Well, we got, we, got, we got Dez playing guitar, and um, Dez uh, was the singer of Black Flag before Henry Rollins. And then what happened was that uh, Henry was uh, – uh, hold on one second, huh? I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Let me help you look. Okay. Uh, so what happened was that um, Dez was singing before Henry, and then what happened was they had uh, seen Henry in D.C. He was a friend of Ian from uh, Minor Threads, and they were thinking of getting a little more edgier and doing that. Uh, so Dez moved to uh, rhythm because he's a really good guitar player. And after that, uh, you know, Henry wound up singing. So as time went by and Black Flag blew apart, uh, I, we ran into Dez in uh, 2001 as a special guest for the uh, 19, uh, 25th anniversary run. And uh, he just kind of stuck with us and stayed with us. And, uh, you know, it, it evolved into that. Guitar work on the album is fantastic. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we got uh, Eric Arcy. We call him the Chupacabra, the goat from uh, Murphy's Law. Oh, hold on. This got to go away. From Murphy's Law. And he's playing drums. Hardcore drummer out of... Uh, out uh, of Queens. Okay. And uh, he's doing really well. And uh, obviously we got Big Ed Stasium, who did all the Ramon stuff, uh, working on it. And Ed helped us with uh, different guitars and stuff like that. You know, so that'll help you look. So uh, when do you think we can expect this record? Because I'm really getting excited for it. Well, we're actually, my son's out there mixing it. My wife and my, and my little girl are going out uh, middle of next week to, to prove the mixes. 
and we're hoping to have it out right around Thanksgiving time. So uh, the only thing we have to do right now is nail down some artwork. Awesome. Now, I've seen you're, it on you're guys... it. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say you're going to love it. It is by far the best thing we ever did. It's a concept uh-huh. album. You know what I mean? Okay. It, it, it's Yeah, it's like old school. One song blends into another kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to really like it. I'm looking forward to it. Now, with the artwork, uh, you guys have picked up an artist from Pennsylvania to do the um, the Project 1950. Are you going to go with that kind of style artwork again? or no, you go some we of did the... a thing called The Land of the Dead. Have you seen The Land of the Dead artwork? I No, I have not, I have not seen that. Okay, yeah. Well, we got this guy um, that that's working on that worked on some comic book stuff, and uh, he's uh, really, really amazing. So, I, I think we're going to work with him one more time. If you can get a chance, go online. There should be a picture of the Land of the Dead stuff. So, you'll you'll get you'll get a kick out of what we got there. All right, I'll definitely check that out. Now, you guys are going to be coming through Pittsburgh on October twenty second. It's Friday night, and you're going to be playing the Alta Bar, um, which is close enough to Halloween for me. I, the Misfits in Pittsburgh for a Halloween show, close enough, like I said. We're really excited to see that. Um, have you, like, what was the last time you guys were through Pittsburgh? Uh, I think we came through last year. Uh, we had a good friend of ours, uh, Brandon Lewis, who passed away. He was 21, and he had leukemia. And uh, <clears throat> we got some other friends out there. His buddies, the twins, are out there, uh, uh, Mark and Wayne. And, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, and don't forget that George Romero's hometown, so. Um, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a good place for us. I mean, you know, the, we, we play a place that says that shows the Pittsburgh game over and over again, but I mean, you know, I guess that comes with the turf, you know? <laughs> sure does. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so you guys are playing the altar bar. The altar bar is actually a converted church. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but that's going to be kind of interesting. Yeah, it should be good. We some, some fun stuff. Now, speaking of Jordan Romero, just a fun fact for you. Um, I'm going to assume that you have seen Night of the Living Dead probably a handful of times, right? Oh, sure. So if you remember that opening scene where the car is winding down, winding down the road, that windy road, and then crosses that little one-lane bridge? Uh-huh. I actually grew up right off of that road. I have driven that road, like, every day of my life since, you know, since I can drive. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it was shot, shot right around where I live. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's, in my opinion, it's probably the greatest horror film ever made. Yeah, yeah, like, we're, we're all big fans of you, too. Well, hey, uh, Jerry, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Um, can't wait to see you guys when you come through town here on the 22nd. Cool. And uh, we'll go ahead and we'll take any more of your time. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much. Bye now. Happy Halloween, everybody. One last go. All right, now, let's be honest. How many of you thought that was a Metallica song originally? That was Last Caress from the Misfits. So I want to thank uh, Jerry and Aaron both for a great interview. Aaron did a great job with that, and Jerry was very gracious to take the time out to do it. So, again, that's October 22nd at Alter Bar. Uh, going to be a great Halloween show to get some classic core punk. Uh, now we're going to switch gears completely. 
On November 7th at Dingbats in Monroeville, guitar legend Frank Marino and Maho- of Mahogany Rush will be coming to uh, play a very, uh, what should be a very intimate show there. Uh, Frank Marino, maybe not a name you've heard of, uh, unless you're kind of into classic rock or a guitarist. Frank Marino was a name that I kind of got interested in finding out more after hearing Zach Wilde of Black Label Society sing his praises in a Guitar World column. So, uh, I was lucky enough to pick up a copy of the live album, which is kind of their classic. So before we get into the interview with Frank, I'm going to play you just a little taste of the world anthem from Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush live, and then we'll get into Eric's interview with Frank. Today we have on the line Frank Marino of Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush. How are you today, Frank? I'm good, Eric. How are you? Great, great. Uh, we just wanted to catch up with you and uh, talk about what's going on in the world of Frank Marino and the tour. And um, just uh, I know you're coming to our town on November 7th, so we'd mm-hmm. like to get everybody uh, brought up to speed in, in uh, ahead of the show. Mm-hmm. So we'd just like to talk a little bit about your career, Frank. And um, uh, first, let's start off with what got you started into into music. Well, I was. Um was the 60s. So, you know, 60s was the time of music. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, today kids have video games. Then kids had music. <laughs> that's, that's basically what it was, you know. And uh, There was really nothing else outside of normal living that was that what young people did was music. It was, I guess, like I say, to the 60s, it was the same thing that, let's say, video games or films or whatever is to the kids of today, you know. Mm-hmm. And so music was a part, the background of everybody's life, and I, I grew up basically being a drummer, you know, liking jazz and loving Buddy Rich, and then the late 60s came along, and the psychedelia stuff started, and the hippie movement and all that, and of course I eventually started liking that kind of music, and um, became a guitar player uh, like in 1968, and um, it was the time, man. It was just, you know, it's what what people did. <laughs> That's what people did. They they did music, and uh, it's funny because it didn't have to be in your family, or you know, like you see sometimes people are musicians say, well, my father was a musician, my mother was a musician, but in our family there wasn't anything like that. It just it just graduated to all the youngsters, and uh, my brother became a musician, my other brother became a musician, so that's uh, that's how I started in music. Oh, that's really that's really interesting. What was some? What did your first uh, you know gear look like and and things like that? How did how did you you know did you have the Mel Bay book or you know what no, no, what no, got no, you no, started? No. You have to understand that from my point of view and pretty much from the point of view of most of the people in my own circle, you know, friends, we didn't get into music to be musicians. It wasn't like. Um, no one was saying, gee, I want to be a musician or I want to be in a band. You know, today, guys start music because they want to be in a band or they want to be on a record or whatever. But in those days, it was very much like, again, I come to the video game thing. Why do kids today, you know, gravitate towards video games when they're young? They don't do that thinking, I'm going to be a video game programmer. Right. They just, it's fun. So they take their, their Xbox over to their friend's house and they 
play Xbox, and then the next day that guy comes over to his house with his PlayStation. You know, it's the thing to do. Well, we took our instruments to our friend's house and played guitar or, or played drums. I played drums when I was growing up, so hack the drums over to the guy's place because he had a basement, and we'd bash on the drums. It was just about having fun doing it. it so the idea wasn't like, <clears throat> you know, I have to get this amp or I need to get that book to learn these songs. It, it wasn't like that. We weren't trying to be better musicians. We were just trying to play instruments to have fun. And so none of that ever ever entered into the equation of but whether you got better or you didn't get better, whether people thought you were good or not. Good had nothing to do with it. It was just like a way of having fun. So, you know, I, I got a my first guitar happened to be very similar, if not exactly similar, to the one I, I ended up using for the what became my career. And I just, you know, used whatever anybody had and somebody had a pro reverb amplifier and then a twin reverb amplifier and <laughs> just moved from one thing to the next and just had a lot of fun. It just became a career, and it sort of turned turned into that. Even though at the very beginning, when you know, after a couple of years of doing that, when record company people started to come around and see that the band was was really you know something that they thought people would be interested in, they offered record contracts, and I refused. You know, for six months I wouldn't even talk to these guys because. I thought that if you get if you got involved with people in record companies, you were somehow selling out your fun. It, right. It, it was like you know, oh, only only sellouts do that. You know, <laughs> that type of thinking. Yeah, it's a dirty word. Yeah, and so um, so it was like no no no, we're not interested. We're not interested. We're just having fun. And then, you know, the way they finally got me interested was because they said, look, uh, if you if you'd be interested in doing these recordings. We'll put you in a in a in this place called a studio. Who knew what a studio was, right? Right. And we'll put you in a place called a studio, and you've got lots of equipment in there, and and you can do whatever you want. And we won't even show up. And I said, oh, equipment. <laughs> okay, we can go in there and use their equipment, you know, and they won't even show up. So yeah, a big room that you could take your gear to and 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 play, and just so what? So someone was recording it. Big deal, you know. So. Consequently, I made my first album at 16, and um, uh, they didn't show up. And they knew that the only way to get me to sign on with them was was to let me run my own thing. So they actually gave me the ability, the right, to what they called produce your own album. So I became the producer of my first album. And really, I didn't know what I was doing at the moment. And, and consequently, after that, I always produced my album. So I ended up getting a production education from the from the earliest uh, earliest days, just because they thought that was the only way to keep me. In retrospect, now that it is a career, I probably should have had a producer on the first album or the second album to teach me how to record it. But uh, but I didn't. So I I worked with the gear they had and just did the best tape recording I possibly could, and that's how it started. Was this, um, I guess, at a Canadian studio that yeah. you started out? Yeah, it was in Montreal. Yeah. Okay, that's where you're originally from, right? Yep, that's where I still am. Okay, that's good. Now, who are some of your um, musical influences? Um, you mentioned the, the drum influences. Uh, what about the guitar influences? Well, um, I think when I, started, when, when I started getting into guitar, because of the situation I had, I'd gone to a hospital, I'd you know, basically had a little bit too much of late 60s living. Um, I was into the kind of music that matched that kind of living. 
So obviously, you know, there was Jimi Hendrix, there was John uh, Cipollina from Quicksilver Messenger Service, there was Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, Johnny Winter, uh, Dwayne Allman, Carlos Santana. We're talking 68, 69 now is when I started playing guitar. So mm-hmm. by this time, you'd already had Hendrix out for a year. And, sure. You know, um, and so... Those were the guitar influences. I wanted to go in, you know, I didn't want to go in any direction, but that's the direction that I was going in because I liked that kind of thing. And to me, that was guitar. You know, I didn't think about, uh, for instance, uh, the other guys who were maybe playing less uh, oddly. <laughs> I didn't consider that guitar, you know. I considered guitar what Hendrix and those guys were doing. And I thought it sounded really good on guitar, you know. And so they were my my earliest guitar influences. And of course, later on, because I just liked the guitar, I I pretty much liked anybody that played the guitar, you know, whether he was playing jazz or or blues or rock or whatever. As long as I I thought the guy was playing it well or making interesting sounds with it, when I say playing it well, um, then that was a guy I liked. So I liked a lot of guys. And it wasn't one of these things where I, when I had been a younger child, and I liked the Beatles. Well, you know, if you liked the Beatles, you didn't like the Stones. <laughs> right, mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, you know, well, I'm the Beatles fan, and my friend so-and-so is the Stones fan, right? Star Trek or Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. So that was, but when it came to the guitar, no, I kind of liked everybody, because I just liked the sound of the instrument. A lot of times, with the exception of Jimi Hendrix, I didn't even put a personality on any any of the other guitar players. It was just that they happened to play stuff I liked, and I liked what they did. But in the case of Jimi Hendrix, I did. It had more of a personal, you know. Jimi Hendrix was a completely other creature on the guitar. Sure. It was like I'm I'm a hockey fan, so like Jimi Hendrix was the Wayne Gretzky, mm-hmm. you know, of hockey, and everybody else was good, but but this guy was, you know, in my mind, three times better, you know. Certainly. And so that's those are the earliest influences on guitar. But you know, as I began to to play more, I also was being influenced as a guitarist, but not by guitar. So I'd be influenced by, for instance, the the sound of a band. I was, you know, Bob Dylan, for instance. You know, like the, just the music itself would influence me as a guitarist. Some horn players would influence me as a guitarist. Some some keyboardists would influence me as a guitarist. Because I liked the way it, the music worked, you know. I loved the Doors when I was young, and you know, Robbie Krieger wasn't the reason I loved the Doors. It was more like Manzarek's organ, you know, mm-hmm. that I loved and the songs, you know. So that influenced me, but in a guitar way. Sure. Now, some of the techniques you employ, like uh, one thing you're known for, I know, is the, the ability to make the guitar sound like you're playing the piece backwards and yeah. things like that. How how have you perfected that that sort of thing? I mean, that's I believe, a, a very unique technique that you really don't see a lot of these days, or probably well, really not ever. There's there's three techniques that I... About three or four techniques that I developed uh, on purpose, you know, developed them because I wanted to something to sound a certain way and either didn't have the tool that would make it sound that way or or didn't have the knowledge. For instance, slide guitar. I always loved slide guitar, and I always loved the way Johnny Winter played it, and I loved the way Ry Cooter played it, which are two different styles of doing it. Mm-hmm. But 
I couldn't play slide guitar. I didn't. I, something just didn't make sense to me to put a tube on your finger, and then you know it just did not feel right to me. But I really wanted the slide guitar sound. So what I ended up doing was developing my own way of imitating slide guitar, where using my tremolo arm and just bending the strings a certain way and picking the right notes at the right time. And now today, when people hear me playing and it really does sound like I'm playing a slide in a song. It's not a slide. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I did the same thing with backwards guitar. I re always loved backwards guitar. I loved it since I heard Are You Experienced. Actually, I liked it since I heard the Beatles when they did Revol on the Revolver album when they did Tomorrow Never Knows, mm -hmm. which is way before Hendrix. Sure. And, and so I always loved that sound. And then I thought, well, you know, today they have machines that will give you reverse echoes and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess if a guy wanted to create the backward effect, he'd buy this pedal or this machine, and that would do it for him. But I didn't have that in those days. So I had to sort of imitate how it was done. So I figured, well, you know, it gets louder as you play it. So I used the volume, play, volume pedal to make the notes start low and get loud. And then it was like, yeah, that doesn't just get louder, but it stops at the end. You know, so then I had to, like, put my hand on the string to make it stop. And then it was like, well, okay, but it still doesn't sound right, but... You have to think of the licks backwards, like where you bent up, you have to bend down. Mm -hmm. And where you bent down, you have to bend up, you know? So I started learning this technique about how to think of the notes completely in reverse and put the volumes to it with the pedal and use the echo, you know, an echo, a typical tape echo, to make, make what I played happen after I played it. So my technique is based on, you know, playing a line that goes into the echo but playing it so it'll, be, it'll sound like it's reversed. And then when the echo repeat plays it, I'm playing the next line to follow it so it all strings together. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, there's a lot going on. But in the end, it really, really does sound like reversed guitar. I mean, mm -hmm. it really doesn't sound like sort of reversed guitar. Sure. I mean, and I, I've, got, I've got it on albums all the time, live albums, and you, know, you hear it on all my albums, and, and pretty much the reversed guitar is, is not really reversed. <laughs> it's, it's fake reversed and yeah. it's the same with the slide and you know the same thing happened with the fret tapping things you know Eddie Vale and Van Halen and all these guys became pretty you know famous for for using two hands on a neck but uh, I was doing these things basically to try to get this kind of sound before we knew how to do it you know and I'd figure out well you know if you use two hands on the neck it makes some interesting changes sure <laughs> So I and also I play behind my bridge sometimes, which gives it a a really kind of metallic kind of tone, which I don't hear anybody else do, you know. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, these are the things you have to do when you want to be creative and you don't have a lot of gear, which is exactly the situation of someone coming out of the '60s. What did they have? You know, 1969, 70s had a fuzz tone, you know, maybe a. A wah-wah pedal? wah pedal, yeah, it, maybe a volume pedal. It wasn't much more. And, you know, we know Hendrix used a Univide, but no one else could get that then. You know? Right. They didn't get that till the mid-'70s. Sure. You know, so all the way through the early part of the 70s, it was like, well, I want to I be able to make these sounds, so I had to find my own ways of doing it. In the end, I ended up building my own pedals and my own stuff, which I do today. I build amps and, and pedals from scratch. Oh, I'll great. do what I want, <laughs> you know. That's that's no, that's really great. Yeah, you you truly are a man of multiple talents. That's that's awesome. Now, um, as far as the the way the music business is today, and uh, you know, it's obviously a lot different than it than it was then. Um, 
you know what's what's your view of the the current uh, music business and and how it all how it all works or doesn't work? It, it's over. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to say it. It's it's over, and it's been over for a long time. And I think I, I'm saying as a business, as a, as an industry, as a as a, a the thing to do, that's done. Mm-hmm. And I I look at all the musicians, and it's and I mean it's been done for so long. It's not like it just went over like you know a year ago. Sure. No, like fifteen years ago, it's been over for a long, long time. And but the people who still think that they can, you know, well, we're going to get our band and we're going to make our record and we're going to get signed and we're going to do the tours. The people that are still doing that, it reminds me of these movies where the guy's dead and doesn't know it. <laughs> you know, like it's a bunch of people that are that don't realize it's over, but it is over. Mm-hmm. And it's and we we have to find a new way. I mean, thank God. To, in my point of view, from my point of view, thank God I don't care about the industry. Right. You know, I don't care. Never cared. <laughs> Even when I was in it, I really didn't like it. Yeah, they kind of dragged you in, kicking and screaming. Yeah, almost. kicking and screaming, and I kicked and screamed all the way through the seventies and eighties, and then finally quit in ninety three. You know, I mean, I stayed away for five years. But thank God I feel that way because I feel so bad. For for those who do think it's important to be in the industry, who think sure. well, they're gonna, and they go and they get jobs and they work in video stores or they do whatever they do and they take all their money and they go and they spend it on some CD, mm-hmm. or some demo, that they hope is going to get them to the next level. But and and normally that was hard to do when there was a next level. Sure. But there's no more level. I mean, the only next level for anybody today doing music. I mean, when we talk about big level. It's those people on American Idol. Mm-hmm. Like they're here for a day and they become big and then they're gone. <clears throat> but, you know, it's not the same. I mean, how many bands come through your city that would have drawn twenty or 30,000 people that now play in 400-seat clubs? Sure. And guess what? When they get to those cities and they do the 400 people, they're congratulating each other. Hey, we did 400 tonight. Yeah, yeah. It's not like they're, well, we're only doing 400. It's a it's a good thing if they can do four, five, six hundred. Now big bands are considered acts that come in and do you know nine hundred seat theaters or a thousand seats. They're considered oh real big pro bands. Those same bands would have done thirty thousand seats twenty years ago. Sure. You remember when all the fe- you couldn't go out for all the festivals there were. Right. And I remember at some point during the seventies, I don't think there was a a month or a week I wasn't going from one festival to the other and waking up off the bus and stepping on stage and there was oh how many are here today sixty five thousand oh forty five thousand oh sixty thousand oh today it's small it's only thirty two thousand oh that's what I hear people saying backstage. What do you think drives people away from from uh, what, what do you think reduced the size so drastically? What what sort of phenomenon uh, do you think happened? <laughs> because the public is not stupid. Okay, <laughs> I keep saying this all the time. The people in our industry have made an industry out of believing the public is stupid, ah. and they're not stupid. Mm-hmm. You see, they're 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 people who just wanted to play along, and then they got treated like crap. And they mm-hmm. said, you know what? You guys aren't curing cancer. Yeah. You're giving us a bunch of music that we can go and bebop and dance to, and you're charging way too much for it. Mm-hmm. Way too much. Listen, an artist, ever since I was in the, the 70s, I can tell you this, and any artist you speak to, if they w- are willing, is going to tell you this. The royalty 
for a major artist on a record is no better than two to three dollars. Mm-hmm. It was always two to three dollars, and now it's not any better than two to three dollars. And there's been inflation. But if they're selling these items for fourteen or eighteen or whatever dollars, and it and the artist is only getting two bucks, and it only costs a buck to make it. Where's the other 11 or 12 or 13 bucks going? Exactly. It's way, way, way out of whack with what it is. Because artists today could sell their material for $5 a CD and make more money than they did when they were $2 artists if people could buy them in the same numbers that they used to. Mm-hmm. They'd be happy to do that because instead of getting 2 bucks, they'd be getting 4 bucks. Sure. on a $5 CD. So where's all that extra money going to? It's going to the industry middlemen who created an industry of middlemen out of the fact that they thought people are stupid, people are sheep, and we can just charge what we want and do what we want, and they'll keep coming. Mm-hmm. Barnum said it too, suckers. They're suckers. And he said there's a sucker born every minute. But That's guess right. what? This ain't Barnum. Nope. And the And the... And the people who are part of who like music are not suckers. They're not stupid. So they put up with it for ten or fifteen years and then they said, You know what? This this crap sucks. Because you know what? We wouldn't mind paying for it and even paying too much for it if they were giving us good stuff or letting us hear a lot of variation instead of the same four songs we heard on the radio eighty times a day. Yep. So people said, Hey, the internet came along and they found a way to go peer to peer and they found a way to get it from their friends, and they found a way to download it, and they found a way to have it without having to be considered a sucker by the industry. And they basically made fools out of the industry moguls who created this monster in the first place. And I, for one, couldn't be happier Mm -hmm. because I'm completely for the downloading of music, and I'm completely for the sharing of music. I don't believe that crap that it hurts your sales. Well, right, it's going to make people want to come see you live for one thing. I I can prove it in one way. If during the 80s, when people had tape recorders, okay, mm-hmm. if someone had told a record company that some radio station was going to play their artist 24 hours a day straight over and over again, that, radio, that record company wouldn't say to that radio station, don't do that, it'll hurt our sales. Right. As a matter of fact, they'd have paid to have that done. Sure. Okay, which proves it doesn't hurt the sales. If you knew there was a radio station in the 80s, that would only play Led Zeppelin, and believe me, there was. Okay? <laughs> a few. Quite a few, yeah. That would never stop a person from going to buy Led Zeppelin because he could tell himself, well, I can always hear it on the radio. That just didn't happen. Right. He went and he bought it anyway. So, And the record companies paid lots of money to get radio stations to do stuff like that. So what is the difference having it available 24-7 on a radio station and having it available on the web? Sure. And another nice thing is you can now download just a piece of an album, so you can get you know the rest of its fluff. You know you can get the good stuff. You know that's yeah, you get, exactly. And here's my big question to the industry: Why is there even fluff? Right. Why bother wasting time on it? Yep. You know, here's the thing: When I was doing California Jam, now remember California Jam was the culmination of um, you know the '70s. Woodstock, okay, if you want to call it that. 300,000 people, I mean, it was the big deal, right? There was a certain artist on that that show who shall remain nameless, but whose manager 
came up to me and started, while that person was on stage, started talking about that artist in the sense where he was saying, so what do you think now? He's, he's really improved, hasn't he? <laughs> and I remember looking at that manager and thinking, even if that were true, what the hell are we doing? Improving. Right. You know, like, like why are we here? <laughs> why yeah. is he famous if he that, has to improve? Right, it implies that the product wasn't really that good to begin with. Yeah, and I thought that was the strangest thing for a manager to say to me about that particular artist. But guess what? It was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which made it even weirder, the fact that it was true. Yeah, he had improved. <laughs> you know, oh it, it, imagine saying that about, you know, the the Red Sox or the Yankees or something, the guy's on the team, but hey, now he's improved after five years. It's like, well, why was he on the team for the last four? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Sure. So I, I just, I see that the industry has changed completely, and it's it's basically a bunch of 14-year-olds figured out how to bring it down. Mm-hmm. You know, they figured <laughs> out how to circumvent the protections and bring it down, and they did. The video idiots, the video gamers, they figured out how to circumvent all the protections and bring the industry down, and they brought it to its knees to the point where the RIAA and the industry are suing fans. That's right. It's absolutely Kafka-esque mm-hmm. that this could be going on. Sure. It's wrong. Listen, the industry finally came to where I knew it would come to when I refused to sign in the first place. <laughs> I mean, at 16 years old, I had an inkling that I should join it. Right. And I was right. Mm-hmm. Now, would I have become as known <clears throat> if I hadn't have joined it? No, of course I wouldn't have. But I would be a lot happier for the for the next 15 years. Sure. Because I spent, you know, from 1970 till 1993, I spent almost every day of that time thinking, how am I going to get out of this business? Mm-hmm. I love the music, I love the the players, but I hate the people running it. Yeah, it's like working for this really bad company, but making a really cool product. Hell, it was like working for Apple. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, like, how have you, you know, so you left the you left the uh, business, so to speak, in 1993. How are you working it out today? I mean, I know you are touring, and I you know, very little. Yeah, just a, just on a very limited basis. Very limited. What do you fill the rest of your your life with? What uh, what type of projects do you have? And I record. Mm-hmm. I produce. I, I'm I'm available for a lot of things, and guys don't know that because they think they can't call Frank Marino up and ask him these things. But I'm a very accessible guy. You go to my website. I'm the most accessible guy in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you really are. I you know I emailed you. You got back to me. So you I know, mean, hey. fans get my phone number. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's not like I don't treat this like I'm the guy and you're the fan. As far as I'm concerned, they're doing me a favor if they like my stuff. Sure. I'm not like higher than them, and that's kind of a silly idea that some of these artists have. They have to remain like aloof mm-hmm. from people. It reminds me of the story my friend was saying, you know, poor Elvis, poor Elvis, you know, the guy couldn't go anywhere, the guy couldn't go anywhere. And my other friend Willie says, yeah, well, it might not be the case if he wouldn't walk around in a cape. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, so so the point is, I'm very accessible, and so what I do is, if guys want to hire me to play on their record, I do that. I do a lot of production work. I do a lot of mastering. I do a lot of editing, a lot of engineering. Uh, whatever it has to do with music, I do. And I, and, and I really take pride in doing it as well as I do the music itself. 
Like I I'm, I'm, think I'm a really good mastering engineer, very good producer, and certainly good at fixing and editing editing tracks. Um, and sometimes people say, hey, you want to play on the record? And they feel all sheepish. They don't. They think I'm going to say, well, no, I don't do those things. But I say, yeah, sure. What's the, what's the deal and what's the record? You know. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. That's what I do with my time. I do exactly the same thing I'd be doing if I had never joined the music industry. Sure. And I have three kids, and they hang out with me, and they do the same stuff. Oh, that's great. You know. So that that I think is is the way it has to be, and I, I'm glad that it's that way. Listen, I don't have a lot of money. That's true. I could have had a hell of a lot of money if I'd have you know not kicked and screamed at the industry the way I did. You know, I I was so adamantly against them that I'd go give them albums with 22 minute songs on them. <laughs> you know, like and they'd go like, we can't do anything with this, and I'd I'd be thinking, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know long jams and stuff, right? Sure. If you look back at my history, the type of albums that I've done, you know, they're great songs that, that always had like six or seven minutes so they could never get on the radio. Sure. Yeah, even that length was too long. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure, definitely. And the only reason that they were five, six, or seven minutes and not 19 minutes like they are today is because records only held 18 minutes aside. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, make maximum 22 or 23 so an album in those days was 46 to 48 minutes long. An eight track, forget about it. Yeah. So so yeah, what well, that's what I did. I did I in a sense sabotaged my standing in the record at the record labels and with the managers because I am so much a 60s person in the sense that I don't I really can't stand the whole corporate idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just I wouldn't like it even if I wasn't a musician, you know, like the whole Walmart thing, you know? Yeah, I'm just not into that. You know, it takes away the individuality of people, and I I believe in people. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it affects me politically. It affects who I would vote for and why. You know, it, it's I'm a very religious guy, so I believe in people. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, the industry doesn't. The industry believes in hey, you know, the numbers tell the tale, and how many bums can you put in the seats, and uh, what's the flavor of the month, and yeah. This is just not something for me. It just doesn't go with my character. So now I tour, you know, when I when I want. You know, it's sort of like, oh, it would be nice to do some gigs. So now we're going to do six or seven gigs. You know, whereas in the old days it would be, okay, you're recording for three months and you're touring for nine. Right, maybe, yeah, yeah, right. Hardly get any time to yourself and, and hardly any thinking, family. I was thinking, why are we doing this? Sure. Well, you're doing this so that next year you can record for three months and tour for nine. <laughs> and you'll be doing that so that the year after you can record for three months and tour for nine. How is that any better than the guy who has the dead-end job who says, gee, I wish my life was different? Sure. It's just a different set of of, uh, of, of pressures. Mm-hmm. And, and look, I'm not going to say I don't like touring. I like touring because I like travel. But I don't like touring because I like touring. It's not like, I, gee, I won't travel. If I, if I had any kind of money, I'd probably travel to the same cities. <laughs> you know, as, as like a vacation. <laughs> so that's that's the way that works. Now the folks you're touring with uh, are any of them from the original Mahogany Rush from the 1970s? Do you have I've any original members? Been a long, long time. Been a okay. long time since the original guys. Well, here's the thing too: they weren't actually the original guys. They were they were the original guys that the public knew. Ah. But there was guys before them. Mm-hmm. There was like a few drummers and a lot of bass players. There was even a keyboard player. 
there was a mahogany rush before Max Doom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the guys that got known, Jim and Paul, uh, when we started making those albums for the larger record companies, uh, I mean, Jim left in what, 80? Okay. And Paul was 85? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, about 84, 85. So, man, actually, they've been gone longer than they were in the band. But they're still my friends. Mm-hmm. That's good. Sure. So what, how many folks are in the band right now? Do you, what, what does the band look like in its makeup? Well, usually, usually I have, usually we're four, okay? But sometimes mm-hmm. it moves, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's, you know. But usually we're four, and it, it makes, it's made up of me, a drummer, a bass player, and usually a, a rhythm guitar or some other instrument, and lately it's been an electric violin. Oh, interesting. And the last few tours, it's my, my, my good buddy, Avi Ludmer, who's, great electric violinist and he also plays guitar so basically he'd play the rhythm guitar and when it calls for him to do solos like the rhythm guitarist would do he just pick up his violin and play the violin right and it sounds great mm-hmm. but unfortunately Avi can't come on these six or seven gigs because <laughs> oh. he's doing something so I have to go out without Avi so Mick is coming with me Mick was like with me when I did Real Live and all those other tours he's a guitarist so he's a great guitarist so the other soloist is going to be a guitarist this time like it always was before Avi okay and the bass player is a new guy well he was with me for one or two tours he's very young he's like 24 his name's Mark Weber and he's just a really really great player and Dave Good has been with me forever on drums and although I've had other drummers come and go you know like Dave will leave and do something else and maybe Joey will come and then Dave will come back it's almost like Frank Zappa's band ah it's, it's very much like Frank Zappa's thing mm-hmm or, you know, you never knew who was playing with Frank. Right. It was like well, sometimes it was Steve Vai, and then it was Ainsley Dunbar, and then, you know, but they're all part of the same kind of clique, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's basically how Mahogany Rush works. Oh, okay. That's a good way to, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, now, we're, all, the... we're all real good friends, and we all, they all have other lives because I don't tour that often. So what's a guy going to say he's in my band for five gigs a year with even the rest of the time? Sure. So they have their own bands, they have their own lives, they have their own things that they do, and I'm glad they do. Well, I'm glad you chose Pittsburgh as one of your tour dates, since it is such a brief tour and, and done so infrequently. Well, we yeah, well, when we say infrequent, let me tell you why it's infrequent in certain cities, as opposed to wh- whether I tour or not. Mm-hmm. It's because the promoters in most cities don't want the act. Yeah. It's not like we say... Well, we're not going to Pittsburgh. <laughs> every time we decide to go out on the road, every single time we decide to go out on the road, we call every promoter or the agents call every promoter in every single city. Ah. They don't leave one out. Sure. And if you don't see me coming through Pittsburgh or you don't see me coming through New York or wherever, it's because no promoter in that city would hire the band. It has nothing to do with why we go to a place. We right. will go anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. Anywhere. There's no city too small or town or too big. We'll go. The promoter says, do you want to play? We're there. Mm-hmm. But you don't always get the promoters who want to do it. They'll say, well, you know, have not had a record, and blah, blah, blah. Maybe it won't sell, and blah, blah, blah. There's always that kind of, you know, hedging. Sure. So when we find a promoter in Pittsburgh, like they did this time, who says, yeah, yeah, we'd like to have Frank. Okay, we're there. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works. Yeah. I hadn't been to Pittsburgh for years, and then all of a sudden someone at the Rex Theater gave me a gig. 
what was it, about five years ago or something? It was the Rex, right? Yeah, the Rex on the south side, right? Yeah. And That's so a beautiful said, theater. Oh, you want to come and play in this theater called the Rex? I said, hey, I haven't been to Pittsburgh in a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I, I love the Steelers and I love the Penguins. <laughs> sure. So, so, yeah, sure. I, the Steelers are my team, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, and we went we did this Rex Theater, and then we got the Pittsburgh Blues Festival because of that, and then we got another small little club in Pittsburgh after that, and I don't even know where we're playing this time. I just know a promoter said we can come play a place in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, it's a restaurant called Dingbats. It's um it's um in Monroeville, which is east of the city. So it's a it's a small venue, but I think it'll be a good venue. There you go, Monroeville. Most mm-hmm. maybe some bands would say no to Monroeville because it's not Pittsburgh. You know, they're all. Well, it is. It's a little bit of an unusual venue, but uh, like I say, I, I think it'll still be a good one. Yeah. Sure. A gig is a gig. I don't care. You know, I've played to 330,000 people, and I've played to 11 people. And <laughs> two nights to 11 people. Wow. In Windsor once. Uh-huh. And, you know, the rest of the band said, uh, maybe we should just cancel. You know, I said, are you kidding? I said, do you know how amazing this is for those 11 people? Yeah. Let's bring them on the stage. Mm-hmm. Let's make them bring their chairs up to the stage and do like we're at home. Yeah, we did. we did our three, four-hour show both nights to eleven people. That's that's awesome. How long are your shows typically on this on this tour? Well, they're probably not going to be three, four hours. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be fifty-six in November, and I can hardly walk anymore. You know, <laughs> I'm like getting a little old, long in the tooth for that. But there'll be at least two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about the I don't know about the three-hour mark, but there'll be at least two and a half. Yeah, yeah. Or two hours and 15, you know, like whatever I'm feeling because it's not planned. We don't even know what songs we're going to play. You don't even make up a set list? Are you kidding? I haven't had a set list in my life. (laughs) None in my life. It's true that we would end up playing concerts and playing the same things, the same things, the same things, but that's like by habit. It's not like there's a list, you know. So there'd be a a run of concerts where we're always doing King Bee and it's always the third tune, you know. Sure. But then all of a sudden it's like, eh, let's do this one. And then that becomes the third tune for the next five gigs, you know. We, but in this, oh, I haven't been on the road in what, almost a year and a half, two years. So last year we were supposed to tour. My dad died, so the whole thing got canceled. And at that oh. time we had 28 gigs, you know. Okay. And so everything got canceled, and uh, now we're here in the new year, and we only got six or seven gigs or whatever it is, eight gigs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we said, okay, what are we going to play? I don't know, you know, like what the hell are we going to play? We'll, we'll we'll figure it out when we get there. Right, it'll all work out. Yeah, it always does. Sure, it has to. And I think that keeps it real. Yes. I mean, who who wants? To, I don't know. I don't know about other fans, you know, but I know that I don't want to go to a, I don't want to go to a show and see something prepackaged. No. You know, I always thought the best photographs of somebody were the candid ones. Yes. You know, like I could look at posed photographs of my favorite sports star or my favorite artist, but aren't the best photographs when you see him walking into a store, maybe smoking a cigarette, you know what I'm saying? Like, and he doesn't know he's being photographed. Right, then they look more like a human being. Yeah, those are the best photographs. And I think I think music is like, a you know, when you go see a band, it, it is like kind of a photograph of a moment in time, you know? Sure. So, you know, let's just be a pretty straight up and just do whatever comes natural. And maybe we'll play some blues. Maybe we'll play old Mahogany Rush. At least my band members know all the tunes. So it's like we, I can say, hey, let's do Tales of the Spanish Warrior. And they'll go, yeah. Boom. Mm-hmm. So it's, all of a sudden there's a different tune in the show. Yeah. But planning it, not usually. Well, that's, that's great. That makes it, that makes it all the better. 
hey, it's rock jazz, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It has to <laughs> has to work that way. Yeah. Well, Frank, um, I uh, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, we I totally had a blast interviewing you. I appreciate you taking the time. And um, everybody, just um, please come out and see see Frank. I know it's going to be an incredible show. It's going to be at uh, Dingbats in Monroeville on November 7th. And uh, information is found. If you go to mahoganyrush.com, you can actually buy the tickets. Uh, I believe it's through a third third party. Uh, but uh, please go out and see him. I think it's going to be an amazing show. And uh, so uh, I hope to make it there myself. Uh, so thank you again, Frank, for coming on the show. And uh, totally enjoyed it. Thank you, and go Steelers. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, Frank Marino, guitar legend and apparently Steeler fan. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the show this time around. I want to thank both Eric and Aaron for doing great jobs. They've uh, really added a lot, I think, to the show uh, and keep me from being quite so busy. Uh, You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. You'll find links to MySpace, Twitter, Facebook, etc. there. Also, uh, you can visit us in our online store. We've got... uh, some new merchandise with our new logo on that available so we invite you to check us out and provide feedback we would uh, love it if you would write a review on itunes for us Um, good or bad we can take our lumps and uh, we appreciate it thank you and we'll see you next time